But I pray everybody is rested up. Let's just jump right in here today. Uh, there is a lot to get to in this text. Uh, we will, uh, Laura just read 1 through 10. We will be preaching and, and teaching through verses 7 through 10, picking up where we left off last week. But first I want to ask you a question. And maybe I'm the only one that this applies to, but I want you to think if there's, if you've got kind of a go-to movie that you watch, that you've seen 5,000 times, and yet you could just watch it again and again and again, and it seems new, it seems fresh, you love it, you laugh out loud at the funny parts, you, you just love this movie. This is going to sound weird, but I have one of those, and it's The Princess Bride. So if anybody wants to judge me, that's fine, but I love that movie. It's great. It's hilarious. I can quote all of it right now, and I would still laugh out loud at all the parts some of them, I don't even know why they're funny, and yet they just make me laugh. I love that movie. I grew up watching it. Anything with Columbo reading a story to Kevin Arnold from Wonder Years about Andre the Giant, this 80s kid's in, okay? I'm, I'm ready to go. Read me that story. I'm going to go home and watch that today. Forget basketball. If you don't like that movie, it would be inconceivable for you... <laughs> I like how some people are like, I don't, who let this guy up here to preach? And other people get, okay. And I don't, surely I don't have to tell you the gospel implications of a, of a groom chasing down his, that's probably a stretch. Okay, I love that movie. I want you to think about whatever movie that, that or book, if you're smarter than I am and you read books over and over, fine. Think of something like that though. That is what this scripture should be for us every time we read it. This should be like a warm blanket that we can wrap around ourselves every single time we read it. It is just fresh and new and it speaks to us in a different way, in a different season of our life. Every single time we read it, we should long to look into the truth that is found in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, every day of our lives. You see, if you were here last week, or if you listened online, or if you heard the sermon at all, and you weren't at least a little bit offended at the beginning of it, being told you were dead in your trespasses, because some of you led a pretty decent life before Christ, and you were thinking, no, I wasn't all that dead. I was, I was halfway there already when Christ saved me. If you weren't at least a little bit taken aback by the fact that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, if that doesn't at least give you pause to think about exactly what that means and exactly what that is saying and exactly how wretched you are and exactly how sinful you are and how impossible it was for you to do anything righteous, up to and including choosing to follow after a righteous, holy God, then you have become slightly inoculated to the gospel. Because we have to understand that if we have become numb to how sinful we were and how great of a God God is for saving us, then we have, we have missed it. And this isn't going to serve as a warm blanket because you were, you were just saying, yeah, God did some stuff. I was okay. But God, God went ahead and finished the work and saved me. We have to understand our depravity. And that is what the first half of last Week. We hear the, the folly, or we hear that the gospel is folly to those who are perishing, to those who are not believing. And the first three verses of Ephesians 2 are why. The world utterly hates to hear this. You're bad, you're evil, you're sinful, you can do nothing good. They ain't having it. 
They're not hearing that. They don't even like actions to be deemed evil any longer. That's just someone's choice to do something. It has to be a school shooting for someone to even say the word evil anymore. But everything else, pretty much short of that, they don't even like the word evil and sinful. And then you come along and you say, you're dead in your trespasses and sins, and they're not having it. And just as we start reading that, we begin to get discouraged. We begin thinking, well, yeah, I am, I am sinful. I am dead in our tre- my trespasses. The sin is not something that's, that's out there with those people. It's something that's in here, in my heart. I am, this applies to me. And just as we start to think, man, what's the point? Why even try? I'm just going to give up now. We hear the sweetness of verse 4. But... God. And that is the start of a breath of fresh air. And that is the, the time we truly get the first breath of true life is when that is breathed into us. But God makes us alive in Him. And then this week we will continue through verses 7 through 10 as we see why He did that and we look at how He accomplished that for His purposes. So verse 7, if you look at it, it reiterates a truth that we have already seen in this letter three times. Chapter 1 says this in verse 6, in verse 12, and in verse 14. Paul gives us reasons why God goes through the trouble, quote unquote, of saving us. Going through the trouble to save such undeserved, dead, wretched sinners. And it says it, a variation of, to the praise of His glorious grace. He adopted us to the praise of His glorious grace. He gave us eternal hope in Christ to the praise of His glory. And He guarantees it in verse 14 that we will acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. It's nothing to do with us. It is all about Him. It is all about His grace. It is all about praising Him for His grace. It is all about Him. And then in verse 7, we see the same thing. It says, verse 6, we were made alive with Christ and seated with him but why so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace again it's a variation of I'm doing this for me you just get the reward for it this term in the coming ages that's basically just another word for eternity so get this in eternity We are praising God for His grace. The very grace that got us into the presence of Him for eternity, we will be praising Him for, for all eternity, upon eternity. That is why we will magnify and proclaim the very grace making it possible forever. In the coming ages, forever and ever and ever, we will never plumb the depths of this grace And we receive all of these gifts, we receive all of these rewards because Jesus earned them with His life and with His obedience. We are guaranteed to acquire possession of this salvation because we were fully purchased by Jesus on the cross. And all of this was to serve one purpose, to resoundingly show that it is by God's grace and God's grace alone And it is to remove any doubt whatsoever if we even start to think maybe I had a little something to do with it. Maybe I earned part of it, right? Maybe he at least looked at me and thought, he's 
he's pretty good. I'll take that one. It's to remove all doubt that it was all God. So we see here why God went through the trouble. Why God even bothered creating, creating beings that he knew were going to turn on him over and over and over and over again. It is so that he could raise some of them to newness of life to the praise of his glorious grace. It's all about him. And we cannot truly worship him fully if we have not, not only grown to accept our own depravity, but to almost love the truth that even in our depravity, God saved us. It's not that we love our sin or we want to go back to it or any of that, but loving the truth that it is all about God and that is what gives us the assurance that it will continue on and that we will acquire possession of it and that he won't change his mind. That is what should comfort us even in light of knowing we were dead in our sins and our trespasses and we could do nothing and yet God stepped in and chased us down. You see, our overly narcissistic and unapologetically narcissistic society, they don't want anything to do with this truth. Even if they're willing to listen to you about Jesus, they do not want to accept the truth that something this major could happen and they don't have any say. Or they don't have anything to do with it. Or they have no control over it. Or they can't jump in and jump out of this truth. Society wants none of this. So today... Well, sir, if you are one of those people that it almost bothers you to not have some control over things or I want to at least have a piece of control and I want to at least do something. I, I don't like anything given to me. I hear this all the time. I don't like things. I want to work for it. If you are one of those people, then we have some slightly good news for you today because there is a stipulation to salvation. To be saved... One must have faith. There is no loopholes or, or runarounds. There's no way around this. Scripture is clear here and in many other places. Without faith, you will not be saved. There's, there's no exceptions to this rule. Everyone has to have faith. So to be saved, this is the means of our salvation. The Bible is very clear. So we must have faith in Jesus Christ. But what is faith? What does it mean to have faith in God? What does it mean to have faith in Jesus? Art Azurdia. I'm going I'm to think that's how you pronounce his last name. He's a pastor in Portland, Oregon. I tried to tweak this to say something better than what he just had. I'm just going to read his quote. What is faith? He says, what is authentic faith? Is it the cultivation of an optimistic outlook on life with a kind of spirituality attached to it? Is it a holy hoping for the best? Is this how you think of faith? Authentic faith is the confident assurance in events not yet seen. Faith is not a call to believe in things when common sense tells you not to. Faith is not a mindless stab in the dark. It is not a crossing of the fingers and hoping for the best. It is not a leap into apparent nothingness. It's a word that speaks of reasoned, careful, deliberate, intentional thought and thought upon what God and His promises. If you are absolutely gripped by the coming realities that have been promised to you by God, then how you live your life in the present will be radically different than if you did not possess that certainty. 
this is what faith is. Positive certainty expressed in action. Authentic faith is not merely believing in God. It is believing God and taking Him at His word. That is faith. That is one of the best definitions of faith that I can give you. It is believing God. You see, faith is not simply believing in God. I hear this all the time. Are you a believer? Oh, I believe in God. Okay. Are you a believer? Like, they're two different things. The devil believes in God. That doesn't seem to get him anywhere. It is believing God. Faith is trusting God to follow through with everything that he has promised because he cannot lie, and we know that he will not lie. You can turn there, or you can, I'm just going to read it in Romans chapter 4. This is a, a chapter that talks about Abraham and how he was justified by his faith. And it says this. This was a revelation to me this week because I, I just hadn't read it this way. But what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. I had never read that and gone, oh, he just trusted what God said. I'd always, I, I guess, overthought it and thought, yeah, Abraham believed in God. He followed after God. I get all that. But what does it say? It says Abraham believed God, not just in God, not just that God existed, not just that God created, not that just God has some say-so over the world. He believed God. So he trusted God when God told him, I'm going to make you a father of all nations. Now go kill the only son you've got. Because that makes a lot of sense, right? You're going to be the father of all of these people, but the one you're actually a father of, I want you to kill him. And yet Abraham was willing to go and do this. Why? Because he knew God would never lie. Because he believed God and his promises. Therefore, he was willing to be obedient. Faith is obedience in action. It is believing God and it causing you to act. But it's very clear in Romans 4, if you keep reading, that it was not his obedience that saved him. It even says, because Paul is a very good writer and he always answers the questions you're going to ask before you even ask them. He's, if you keep reading down, it says, faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the next question says, was this before or after he was circumcised? And verse 10 says, it was not after, but before. So before Abraham was obedient, before Abraham even did the things that God was calling him to do, his faith in going to do those things, in believing that if he follows after God, God will keep his promises, is what saved him. His faith saved him, not his actions. Before the works portion of Abraham's faith, he was justified, he was saved, he was a believer because he believed God and was obedient in response. To be saved... You must have faith. No exceptions. One must believe God when he says that you are in Christ. You must trust Jesus when he says, It is finished. I have done all of the work needed. You must believe this. So that was the good news for any of you in this room or anyone, period, that wants to have something to do with their salvation. Do you have to have anything? Yes, you must have faith. 
Here's the bad news if you fall into that category. If you want to have something to do with it, where do we get this saving faith? Where does it come from? Faith is the means of our salvation. What's the cause of the means? Where does that faith come from? Paul is abundantly clear here. There's no ambiguity. There's no gray area. There there is nothing. He sums up the gospel in nine words. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. We can do nothing to conjure up this faith on our own. Do we have to have it? Yes. Where does it come from? It must be granted to us. It must be gifted to us. It must be, if you read this kind of in the original language, basically thrust upon you even when you don't really want it. And you're not even really asking for it. Because here's the other thing people will say is they, they want to have some part in their salvation. So I ask God to save me. I ask Jesus into my heart. I ask for his grace to give me faith. Yeah, you probably did. Every one of us have done a version of that in here. And yet, it was by grace you even asked that question. God had already gifted you his grace that was leading to saving faith. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Do you have to have faith? Yes, but by grace, unmerited favor, undeserved forgiveness, unwarranted justification, unearned redemption. Do we have that faith that leads to salvation? This is clear from from the passage in verse 8b. So if you read the second half, he states this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And just in case anyone's not quite clear what I'm saying, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. You did nothing. You didn't even ask for it. It is by grace, and it's not your doing. Paul could not be more clear here. Now, some scholars do debate what the word this is referring to. So it says, and this, meaning, let's look back at what it's saying. Some believe that he's talking about salvation. Some believe that he's talking about the faith that leads to salvation. If you want to know my honest answer, I don't know that it even matters because it's saying the exact same thing in that regard. But if I had to pick a camp, I would fall into the camp that God, that the word this here, and this is not your own doing, is referring to faith. Your faith is not your own doing. God gave you that. The one reason is just the tense of the word in the original language. I'm not going to bore you with that because I was even kind of bored looking into it. But... I do think that that is talking about faith. Secondly, though, I think Paul is really wanting to get something across here. He has made it abundantly clear. If you read this from chapter 1 and take all the headings out, take all the stuff we added, the numbers and all of that stuff, if you just read this as a letter, hey, what's up, Ephesians? I'm Paul. I'm writing this. And you just read it as a letter. It's it's abundantly clear since chapter 1 that God does all the saving, all the adopting, all the redeeming, all the justifying. It's clear. God does all of that. So God, without question, ordains the ends of our salvation. The end of it, it says, we will acquire possession of it because he has guaranteed it to happen. So the ends of our salvation. But I think Paul is trying to make clear something also, just so we don't get caught up in, yeah, God will get me there, but i got to do something to make sure that I follow the path and make it to the right place, right? 
No, no, no. Paul here, I think, is also wanting to say God ordains the ends of your salvation. He also ordains the means of your salvation and how you even get there, meaning your faith that is required for the very salvation we are talking about was gifted to you by God's grace and only by God's grace. But here lies the problem that every person in this room has struggled with. At some point, I don't, if you're honest, I don't care. You can tell me you haven't if you want to, but we want quick, easy fixes. We want the ends. We don't always want the means. My wife is pregnant. She will say very much so. If I could have skipped these past eight months and just had baby, snap. Let's have the baby. I think she would say that right now, even though it's a little early, so don't pray that the baby comes yet, but a couple weeks, y'all can go ahead and start, start asking God. But people who exercise, right? We want the end. We want our body to look a certain way based on exercise. But if we could skip all that gym time or all that treadmill time or all that running outside time, in a heartbeat. I, I'm speaking for me, in a heartbeat, I would snap my fingers and do that. We want the ends. We don't always want the means. However, the means is where God is at work. The means is where God is doing something. God has ordained the ends and the means of our salvation. You see, we don't get saved and immediately fly to heaven and we're done. We could. God could have set it up that way, and that's fine if he had of. But why didn't he? For the praise of his glorious grace in the coming ages, but also tomorrow, in your day-to-day life, so that you can live under this umbrella of grace with the faith that he has given you for the praise of his glorious grace in your day-to-day life, in your day-to-day decisions, in what you are doing to show his surpassing worth to the world. You see, the end is salvation, and we all want that. Even people who aren't following Jesus. You want to go to heaven? Sure. Sounds better than the other one, right? We all want the end of our salvation, but we don't want the means. It means trusting day-to-day, having faith when it is really difficult to have faith. Having trust in God when it it seems very illogical to do that sometimes. The world is going to look at you and be like, you're crazy. You really believe that? You really believe that God is going to do that in this situation? And sometimes that's really hard. And sometimes they're very convincing because you do look at it and go, yeah, it wouldn't make sense for him to work that way. And then you read Ephesians 2. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. It doesn't make sense for God to work that way either. And yet... But God made you alive in Christ. You see, faith is a gift and it can only be received by grace. This means that faith is a gift. Salvation that comes from faith also falls in the gift category. So this is not a reward. Salvation is not a reward for your faith. It is also simply a gift that God has given you. Yes, it is based upon your faith, but where did we just establish that came from? God gave you the very faith that leads to the salvation. This is not a 401k plan where God matches your contribution, right? You've got a little something to do with it. God has a little something to do with it. You put it together, retirement or heaven, I guess, is the retirement in that analogy, right? That's not how this is. It is by grace and grace alone that we are given the faith by God for salvation. Hope that's clear. Hope everyone got that. But what does that mean now? We have the cause, 
grace. We have the means, faith. For the rest of our lives, we must persevere. But guess who's persevering us, right? But what is the effect? We have been saved from death, but what have we been saved to? This is where we will talk about verse 10. It says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. First of all, we cannot forget here, even though we're talking about works, right? So we are talking about good works. We're talking about God's workmanship, God preparing these works. We'll get to all that. But we cannot assume or think that we have jumped from the identity portion of Ephesians to the works how does this look in everyday life practical portion of chapters 4, 5, and 6. We're not there yet. This is still the identity portion. Paul is reminding these Ephesians of who they are. You have been saved by grace through faith. That is who you are. Look back to chapter 1, which there wouldn't have been chapters in the original letter, but look back to the previous paragraph to see who you are. You are adopted sons of the Most High God. So what does that look like? What are the expectations attached to the fact that he has given you this faith? You see, even in this particular sentence, he wants to remind them of who they are first before he even says anything about good works. He says, which applies to us too, that we are God's workmanship. Now you can read over that and gloss over it and say, yeah, of course we're God's workmanship. He created all of us. And that would be true. And yet that's not exactly what Paul is getting at here. He is saying something even more. He's saying, even though the human being is the ultimate pinnacle of God's creation, you are something even more than that. You are a born-again human being. You are a twice-created person. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, walking around like the walking dead with a kind of heartbeat and a kind of looking like you're alive. But you were dead in your trespasses and sin, and based on nothing in and of yourself, God made you alive. You are his double workmanship. He created you, but then he recreated you in Christ. You are his double creation. You see, the Bible tells us that all things were made through him and by him, meaning Jesus. So that applies to you in this room, whether you're a believer or not. You were created through him, by him, and for him. But then in 2 Corinthians, it says you are a new creation in Christ if you believe, if you have faith, if you trust Jesus, if you are a follower, if you are a believer. So if you are a believer in this room, the first thing applies to you, but this second thing also applies to you. Doubly God's workmanship. But that comes with expectations. That comes with what, did, what is he doing in your life because of that. It says specifically here that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is why he did it for the praise of his glorious grace. But what does that look like in your day-to-day life? And this is answering that question. For good works. That means one of the reasons God saved us in order that we would walk in and perform these good works. And those good works would what? Point to the praise of his glorious grace. Grace, because we're not even capable of the good works outside of his grace. It says here that he created those. He created us in his, created us so that for these good works. I was talking with uh, one of our former residents uh, from Program Living, one of our favorites, 
anybody that works at Hope House, ask me later who I'm talking about. Um, he called from his new rehab uh, the other day. He left a few months ago. He ran into more legal trouble. Uh, we got his letter that he had been revoked, so I texted him, hey, you're probably going to get arrested. Just giving you a warning. You do with it what you want. He went back to court and for the umpteenth time was given some kind of grace from the courts. I don't understand it. I've never seen it happen for anyone in the past. I've definitely not seen it for our guys in the past. And I asked him, I just, this dude, if you knew him, you just, you're just straight up with him. I said, dude, how are you not in jail? And he said, I don't know. I just keep getting chance after chance after chance after chance expecting to go to jail, and I don't. He says, God is, must really be moving, but I still just can't believe. And then he said, and I quote, I really want to believe. I do. I just can't. This is what he said to me. And one, I know this person, so I knew some of the truth there. But then I also just thought about that sentence. And I said to him, no, you don't. That's the thing. You don't want to believe. Because you know that once you say you do believe, that comes with a set of expectations and you can no longer ride the fence the rest of your life, kind of in this half-belief, not-half-belief scenario. He made some smart aleck comment about how I should be his counselor. Yeah, shouldn't have left the program. And then he said, but you're right. That's exactly what's going on. I, don't, I say I want to believe, but deep down I really don't want to believe because I know that that requires change on my day-to-day, -day, change in my decision-making, change from here on out. And I would rather ride the fence. And this is so many of us in this room. We may not be that far out there with the behaviors that he is choosing to participate in, but we want the freedom to do what we want and the salvation that is promised if we don't do what we want. We want both. And the reason I'm starting at this end of the spectrum of obedience is I think most people in this room, I, I, I know most of you, at least some, I don't think most of you are the rebel type looking to toe the line and what can I get away with with God. I think most people in here, by God's grace, pretty much want to be obedient. You're not looking for an excuse to ride the fence. But I would venture to say there's probably some in here that are just good at hiding it. And that's really what they want to do. They really want to be free to do what they want, but still be promised the salvation. You see, God makes it clear here and in other places that he does want us to work out our salvation. He does want us to live as if we are saved, not so that we will be saved. He wants us to work. He wants us to do good works. He wants us to live a certain way to point people back to his grace because it is by his grace we have the ability and the wherewithal and the desire to do those works. But if we are only doing these works out of obligation, you probably need to check your salvation. Now, I'm not saying there's never a time where I just go, oh, I know what I'm supposed to do, so I'm just going to do it. I don't really want to, but I'm going to. There are seasons for that. There are moments for that in everyone's life. And yes, we should absolutely still obey even when we don't want to. But if that's the overarching theme of your life is that you are obeying because you do not want to, God says, when he makes you a new creation, he gives you new desires. So if you live life 
post-conversion with no discernible difference in your desires, no desire to be obedient, no joy in the fact that you are being obedient, you might not be post-conversion. And maybe today you need to pray, God, grant me the faith that is being talked about here because only you can do it. Give me the faith that will lead to these new desires so that I will work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Not to earn my salvation with fear and trembling, but to show that I am saved by my new desires. See, we can live without the fear that God is coming to get us even when we sin. If we are in Christ, He is not looking to squash you into the ground and to punish you every time you sin. That does not mean we sin all the more because God's grace Oh, God's covered it. I'm going to go do what I want. That is not what it is saying. We, are sa- we cannot be saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. Notice the order there. The salvation comes and leads to the good works. We have to preach to ourselves. Warren Wearsby, his middle name is a W-2. I think that's crazy. Warren something Wearsby says, Since we are not saved by our good works, We cannot be lost by our bad ones. But instead of liberty to sin, that sentence right there should encourage us to boldly try to be perfect, to boldly try to be obedient, to boldly obey in the face of criticism and ridicule and ostracism and all of the things that we are going to face in in America and in the world because we are following after Christ. And then... Boldly admit when you have acted like a hypocrite and not done what God has told you to do. And repent, 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 knowing that you can never out-sin God's grace if you are in Christ. If you are saved by grace through faith, you can never out-sin His grace. But we must repent. But we must follow after Him and walk in these ways that He has ordained. Here's the other side of this. And here's where I think most of the people in this room will identify a little more. This is also where it gets a little tricky. This is where people want to buck against this system or this truth that they have nothing to do with their salvation. And I would love to point my finger and be like, those people out there need to get their act together and start believing this truth. But we need to start believing this truth. I can't pretend that it is just those people out there that are choosing not to be in church on Sunday or that have nothing to do with God or don't want to hear it when you talk about Jesus that believe this. We need to hear this daily. We need to understand that even for those who are in Christ solely by the grace of an all-loving God need to be reminded that it is not by our works that we receive that grace. Or, and here's where we all probably fall at times, or that our works maintain that salvation. What does it say in chapter 1? Who maintains our salvation? Who guarantees our salvation? It's the Spirit. It is not our works. It is not our day-to-day. But don't we all live like that sometimes? Don't we all adhere to the catch-me-if-you-can philosophy? Everybody seen that movie? I hope. Spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you part of it. like 15 years old, so if you haven't seen it yet, sorry. But Christopher Walken, like three or four times in that movie, tells this same story to his son to like motivate him, right? Two mice fell into a bucket of cream, right? 
And one mice drowned immediately. And the other mouse, he churned his legs and turned that cream into butter. He walked his way out. And that's what we think of with our salvation. If we churn our legs hard enough, if we churn our legs long enough, if we churn our legs fast enough, God will somehow be impressed. God will somehow grant me an extra blessing or grant me some extra grace today because I was really obedient yesterday and I didn't even want to be, and yet I did all this. I shared the gospel. I did all of these things. God owes me. I'm following after God. How could he let this happen to me? I don't deserve this. We laugh, but we all fall into this category from time to time. Or we think, if I just try harder and hold on tighter and get better, that God saved me by His grace, but I'm somehow maintaining this salvation. I am somehow impressing God enough that He's going to keep me in His grace. Because I'll, I'll, I'll keep this running tally in my head of good deeds and hopefully that number is always greater than the bad deeds. But I, I'll always impress him enough that he'll hold tightly enough to me and forgive me on the bad days, but love me more on the good days. So then our obedience either becomes a source of drudgery or a source of pride, depending on how good you are at it. And both are sinful. See, we fall into this cycle too many times, even as believers. We believe God is more pleased with us on good days and more displeased with us, and it, that negates the gospel. That negates the fact that God's grace in Christ is shown to undeserving sinners, and nothing we can do can ever deserve it, even after we are in Christ. Even after we have come to saving faith, nothing we do is going to impress God so much that He's going to save us extra, or save us more. That's not how this works. But this faith is not just mental assent to God. It's not just, yes, I believe in God. Yes, I believe God's promises. It comes with action. Martin Luther says, justification is by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. For where there is faith, there is works. Faith justifies us. It says it right there in the text. For by grace, through faith, you have been saved. End of sentence. But that does not mean that God does not ask us, expect us, call us, command us to do works. So if you are a Christian in this room, stop living a beat down life. Stop living an a empty, joyless life because you don't measure up. You're never going to. And here's the good news of the gospel is you don't have to. Christ did it. Christ lived up to it. You see, I identify with the rebel. If any of you know my past, you know that I, we talk about it in Mission Church all the time. God saves you from religion and from rebellion. God saved me from rebellion. I was very much wayward. He left the 99 and went chasing after me. But a lot of you in here have even said to me, yeah, I didn't really go through that spell. I was saved from religion, thinking I could work my way to God. I could work my way to heaven. I could build my own little tower of Babel and get all the way to heaven by my good works. And here's the thing. I identify more with that one now because I've been a Christian for 10 years. I think this is the slippery slope that we can all get on sometimes as Christians is the longer we're saved 
and the farther away from this rebellious past that we've had, I mean, that was 10, 12 years ago for me. The farther I get from it, the more I start thinking, yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. I'm getting closer to Jesus. I'm getting closer to Jesus by my works. I'm way over here. I was way over there. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. I got it from here. From about here, I'll take care of it. And this is the mentality, the cycle that we fall in. Too many of us live our lives this way, though. We would never verbally say it. We would never verbally admit, yeah, I'm starting to think that I can work my way closer to Jesus. But we live with this joyless emptiness because we are basing our assurance of salvation on how good we did that day. We are constantly asking ourselves these questions. Have I done enough? Am I good enough? Do I read my Bible enough? Do I pray enough? Have I shared the gospel enough? Have I loved people enough? Have I tried hard enough that God will think, man, he is really putting forth an effort. So I'm going to reward him for his effort. You see, the beauty of this text is that, yes, we are called to good works here. But who is even in charge of getting those accomplished? God. God prepared those beforehand. I randomly was flipping through radio stations the other day and I heard Adrian Rogers, a.k.a. the voice of the good Lord's voice on the radio. If you have heard Adrian Rogers, you stop the radio, okay? You go, hey, who's that talking? Jesus? Is it? I think it's Jesus on the radio. His voice is golden. It's amazing. So I stopped. I had to. Listen to what he had to say, and he told this story. And this is such a basic illustration, and yet it speaks so well to what we are saying. He said he was at church one day. The pastor had set, the pastor that was preaching was not him. He had set this up beforehand. He knew he was going to call Sister Betty, I know that's not your name, Sister Betty up, I was pointing at Sister Betty up to help him on stage. So she, doing his preaching, he said, Sister Betty, will you come up here and help me? So she, he, he told her to bring her Bible, Right? So he says, Sister Betty, do you trust me? Yes. Do you think I would do anything to harm you? No. Would you do anything that I asked you to do on this stage right now within reason? Yes, Pastor. Yes, I would. All right, give me five bucks. She's like, well, let me go get my purse. He's like, no, no, no. You said you'd do it from the stage. You stay right here and give me $5. It's a reasonable amount. Just give me five bucks. She said, Pastor, I don't, I don't have cash. I don't have anything on me. Unbeknownst to her, he had put a $5 bill in her Bible that she brought up to the stage. And he said, open your Bible to so-and-so and so-and-so. She opened it up. Hey, $5 bill. She handed it to him and went back to her seat. Such a simple illustration. And yet that is exactly what we are talking about here. God prepared beforehand the works that you were going to do and then gave you the strength, the wherewithal, and the wisdom to accomplish those and to get those done. So you think, oh, I got to go get my purse. No, you don't. God has already given you the $5 bill. He has already given you the strength and the wherewithal to accomplish those. It's such a simple illustration. And yet, if we read through Scripture, He commands us to carry out works. And then it says, who is ordering our steps? God is ordering our steps. He is going to get you to that good work and get you to do that good work for the praise of his glorious grace. Then all we have to do is do what Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, is throw off every sin and every weight that clings so closely and fix our eyes on Jesus. Because he is the one who has accomplished all of these works. He is the one that has set them in motion. You may be thinking to yourself, yeah, I'm so tired, Pastor. Good. 
Stop trying so hard and lean on God's grace. Lean on the one that is carrying you through. Lean on the one who has promised you success because you can't promise me success in your good works if you're just doing them on your own. You can't give me any assurance that those are going to work. God can. God can give you assurance that they're going to work because he has said he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We walk in the works he has laid out for us. This should be a massive relief to so many of you in this room you should be able to breathe for the first time in forever hearing this truth if you truly believe it just breathe and say oh it's not me that's carrying the weight of this I don't have to look so good to everyone else and especially don't have to impress God he's the one doing it you can ask yourself questions do I measure up no no you don't And guess what? You never will. And you are always going to feel empty. And you are always going to feel condemned if you are leaning on your own strength to measure up. No matter how obedient you are, you are always going to feel condemned and disobedient. Newsflash, God's perfect. You're not, and you're never going to be. But the beauty of this text is even though we will never, ever, ever add up, We will never measure up to that standard. Here's where the relief comes in. This is not an excuse to stop trying to measure up. This is not a get-out-of-jail-free card with no expectations and no requirements. What it should do, though, is simply lead us to a better set of questions. Is Jesus good enough? Did Jesus pray enough? Did Jesus love people enough? Did Jesus share the gospel enough? Did Jesus accomplish the works? Did Jesus give me his righteousness? Did Jesus take my sinfulness away and put it as far as from the east is to the west? The answer to all of those and more is a resounding yes. Jesus did. And here, weary sinner, tired sinner, tired, I can't live up to this standard, is the relief. By God's grace, you don't have to live up to that standard because Jesus already did. So if you are in Christ, Romans 8.1 tells you, therefore, there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So stop living a condemned life. Stop living this empty, joyless, obligatory, obedient life. And live in the joy of obedience that Christ has laid out beforehand that you may walk in them. Because the ultimate work, the ultimate obedience has already taken place on the cross. So if you are in Christ, God is saying stop working so hard. Don't stop trying to be perfect. That's not what I'm saying. Stop working under your own strength so hard and just trust me. Just trust me when I say that it is is finished it's done trust me when i say that i have done it and i will continue to do it i'm not changing my mind just trust him when he says it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and then trust jesus enough to stop trying to do it on your own because he has accomplished everything that the father sent him to do When you start doing this, when we start doing this, when I start doing this, I am preaching to myself here today, gang. When we begin doing this together, though, the question of have I done enough will fall woefully short in the beauty of this text, in the beauty of all that Christ did, and that He always will hold us fast. Brothers and sisters in this room, you 
have been saved by grace through faith and it is not of your own doing. Let us praise Jesus for that truth. Pray with me, please.